Welcome to today's podcast from Nature 2030, an international campaign bringing together business, governments and the third sector to work together on the environmental challenges of this decade. These podcasts are part of our quest to bring together influential activists, politicians, business and thought leaders to focus on the solutions of the climate and environmental crisis. If you are listening to this from the future, perhaps as part of a sociology or history class into what people did during the great COVID-19 pandemic, we're spending too much time looking at our phones and drinking too much while occasionally baking bread and going for runs. If the books tell you anything else, they're lying. If you're listening from the present, put on your headphones, go for a walk and look around at the beautiful nature that forces its way through wherever you live, whether it's a big city or out in the countryside or suburbs. Over the next 20 minutes, we hope to bring you some reasons to be cheerful because this too will pass and all change brings opportunities for the brave. And speaking of the brave, today we're lucky enough to be joined by award-winning urban designer, entrepreneur, and academic, Arthur Kay. Arthur is founder and chief executive of Skyroom, an urban development initiative, installing sustainable and affordable homes on building rooftops to help tackle the housing crisis in cities. He is also founder and deputy chairman of BioBean, a company that makes biofuels out of waste coffee ground, grounds. I'll raise a mug to that in a moment. Finally, he is founder and chairman of Fast Forward 2030, a think tank focusing on using business to solve the world's biggest problems. Welcome, Arthur. Thank you very much for having me on today, John. So tell us about yourself. What, what, what led you towards sustainability? So I was actually uh, got interested in sustainability from a design perspective. I trained as an architect uh, here in London at University College London and became fascinated about how you could use cities as a tool through which you could unlock social, environmental and economic value. So it was very much coming at it from the perspective of how can you use design to change things? And that, that kind of led me down that path. And all of the projects that I've been working on these past few years it's not specifically, they're not specifically or solely environmental projects. They're looking at how you can tackle multiple challenges through design interventions. And that's what I get. That's what gets me excited every day. And um, so, so tell me a bit about Skyrim. So Skyrim is a, a development and technology company. And broadly, what we're trying to do is deliver homes for key workers near to where they work. And that sounds, I guess, pretty obvious. Uh, we're in, the, as you mentioned in the introduction, in the midst of uh, our third lockdown here in London, it's part of COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, but this has actually been a problem for key workers for decades. So we uh, initially wrote a white paper uh, in part of my entrepreneur in residence role at UCL. And that white paper was published by you know, Richard Rogers and UCL in 2018. And in that outlined the need for key worker accommodation near to where they work. And, that's both a you know, thing in terms of actually improving their quality of life. You know, they give their lives to support us and you know, they you know, teach us when we're young, they you know, help us look after our healthcare, keep us safe and prosperous, all those core elements, but it also has a massive cascading effect to society. So most importantly, if you can you know, make sure a doctor comes to work well-rested, having not had a long commute, et cetera, et cetera, that has a massive knock-on effect to the rest of society. So is trying to, Buckminster Fuller had this idea of the trim tab, a small intervention that can make an outsized impact. And uh, we believe that key workers living in you know, affordable, beautiful, sustainable homes near to where they work is one such trim tab. Cool, that's wonderful. Um, 
So how can we all live more sustainably now and into the future? Well, I think there's different answers for, for different populations. If you're looking at it from a policy perspective, I'd answer it in one way. I think if I'm answering it from a kind of someone listening to this podcast who's, you know, like you or me, kind of someone who's you know, just living, living their lives and wants to know how they can make the biggest impact, the answer is slightly counterintuitive. I certainly am used to listening to a lot of uh, kind of eco warriors talking about organic farming and, you know, uh, not using plastic bags and all those elements, which make a huge difference. And obviously, I'd rather use electricity from bulb versus British gas. So those are, I guess, the, the obvious things. But interestingly, they actually make a very small, in terms of percentage decrease, they make a relatively small impact um, in terms of your net CO2 emissions. The answer, very counterintuitive answer in terms of how you can make the best impacts of environmentally for your personal carbon footprint is actually living in the center of dense cities. Now that sounds so weird because often we think that we need to be close to nature to appreciate it or proximity to green space means, means that we feel that we uh, have a lower carbon footprint or better ecological approach. But bizarrely, um, if you look at this data in any country, I mean, if we look at the UK, for example, the average suburban or rural dweller has a net, has a carbon footprint of between 11 and 13 tonnes of CO2 per person, versus if you're living in the dense inner city of a city like Manchester or Liverpool or London or Glasgow, your carbon footprint is between four and six tonnes of CO2 per person. And this trend is actually uh, echoed and mirrored all across the world, whether you're looking at, you know, Shanghai, or if you're looking at New York, or if you're looking at San Francisco, these are it's a very, very counterintuitive idea for environmentalists to understand that living in dense cities reduces your carbon footprint. And the data for this is supported by, um, I'd point reader, uh, listeners toward two books. One is Scale by Jeffrey West, who's a, who's a physicist who studies the uh, economics and, and scale effects of cities. And the other is one of my favorite books by the Harvard economist, Edward Glacier, who has written a book called The Triumph of the City and talks all about how this really weird idea around living in cities is actually the greenest way to live. Um, if, if, if you're living in a developed society is, uh, is yeah, fascinating. So that's very interesting to us, both, uh, both yourself and, and, and I are, in the, uh, are, are living in London at the moment, uh, which is a bit of an epicenter of the coronavirus pandemic at the moment and, and, and looking at it as we are in early February, you know, huge amounts of deaths and stuff and lots of Londoners as well as lots of people living in cities around the world are currently on whatever the equivalent of right move is looking at how can I get out of the city? How can I buy a house in the countryside and, and, uh, and live a kind of rural, rural kind of life. And, and, and what you're saying is, you know, hold fire. Don't do that. We will be able to, to do all the wonderful things that you can do. The whole reason that we live in cities is not to be sat in our houses and occasionally go to over busy parks. It, it, it's due to the theatre and the, pubs and the nightlife and all those things and those things will return and what we found on, on kind of houses is suddenly there is this massive demand on, on, on houses and countryside. What are, what are some of the reasons for uh, the reduced carbon footprint of uh, living in cities? There's some of the um, obvious ones you'd expect so things like supply chains and the up in cities so you have just the economies of scale that come with that. Um, a lot is around uh, less uh, positive things, so things like, you know, the urban heat island effect and not needing so much heating and insulation. But the biggest changes are, um, are two things. One is uh, transport types. So uh, instead of uh, driving broadly, which and the car, 
in my estimation, is the uh, worst in terms of the human planet, the worst invention ever made in terms of its environmental destructiveness, its uh, you know, literally running people over and all the rest of it. So first is using public transport, walking, cycling, rather than using a car. And there's a really interesting theory emerging at the moment called the 15 minute city, which again, I'd urge listeners to go and explore more about, which we're really passionate about at Skyrim, which is being 15 minutes walk or cycle from your place of work, your place of play, where you, your friends, et cetera. And that's all around this kind of idea of the compact city as well. The second is around size of home and whether that, you know, for example, broadly living in smaller homes or living in flats or living in better insulated homes, again, all massively contributes to that reduced carbon footprint. So those are the two big buckets in terms of in terms of individual CO2 that come down uh, exponentially when you start living in dense urban centres rather than uh, the countryside. Right. Yeah. So that kind of. I'm in a I'm in a terraced home at the moment, and uh, as you say, there'll be less heating because I don't need to heat two sides of my home. Whereas if I was in a detached house, it would be cold coming in all around it. And and also it'd be probably you know let's just say you live in a 1,200 square foot home in London, you could probably for the same amount of money uh, buy a three and a half thousand square foot in Hertfordshire. And so it's that kind of differentiation in terms of uh, size and square footage per person again, which all adds to that, yeah. that piece there. And then I suppose as well, if I'm ordering my supermarket shop, there's a much higher chance that someone else is ordering from Tesco's just down the road as well, and they're all both going to go in together, and and that's going to help out as well. And I suppose on the on the on the car front, as you say, uh, if we're in cities, we we use cars far less, even if we own them. Um, what about the people that will then say, well, look, I'm going to buy myself an electric car, and that will resolve that problem? What's your thinking on that? So my, again, my thinking is uh, probably deeply unpopular for all those Tesla shareholders out there. But uh, the electric car, I think, is one of the, the uh, biggest lies of the 21st century. It has huge benefits compared to traditional cars. So I'm not saying that it's uh, not better than a bad alternative, but the challenges are still significant. So, for example, we always think of air pollution as a problem caused by diesel and petrol. In fact, 70 percent of air pollution uh, caused by cars is actually not even associated with the kind of fuel it's using. It's around things like tire erosion, it's around things like dust, it's around things like just having more vehicles moving around. There's also the argument still around where, do, even if it is, uh, which is not currently in London and not currently in 99% of the cities around the world, even if it is electric, you still need to generate your power from somewhere. At the moment in London, that's primarily from, from natural gas. Um, and in a lot of cities, it's from coal-fired power stations still. So the great, the, one of the great irony examples is in that in uh, certain cities in Nordic countries, uh, you, have, you have the highest percentage of Tesla and electric car ownership in the world, which everyone's very proud about and slapping themselves on the back and saying how green they are. But the power is coming not from uh, solar or wind, it's coming from a coal-fired power station on the edge of the city. And so from a carbon perspective, you're still uh, actually, you'd be better off from a carbon perspective driving a petrol or diesel car in the city in terms of lowering your carbon footprint. Um, broadly, my, uh, if I was transport minister, my, my proposal for a transition would be to try and make public transport the default um, alongside walking and cycling. And that's very, very, very few people incentivized to own, own cars and were they to own cars. Yes, it's better that it's electric rather than not, but to try and make that uh, not an aspirational thing. And the, the genius of, of companies like Tesla is that they've managed to to trick us that they become green. But if you can own three Teslas, you're three times more green than the person who owns one old banged up Mercedes. 
and that is uh, not the case. And that's not even getting into the life cycle um, assessment in terms of where those rare earth metals come from, the manufacturing costs of cars, how often they need to be replaced, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and, and, and I suppose the other thing we need to think about there is that Teslas are kind of at the premium end of, of uh, cars which, which use far more fuel anyway because they've got all these kind of extra things that heated seats and temperature control and all those kind of things that actually use far more fuel than a banged up old uh, Ford Fiesta or something like that. Exactly. Moving us slightly to in a in a different direction, but not too far. Bio Bean, um, we're great believers in the in the circular economy here at Nature Twenty Thirty. We've got a, um, a sister campaign called the uh, Real Circularity Coalition. Tell us a bit a bit about Bio Bio Bean. So Bio Bean is a company I set up just after leaving university. So I trained as an architect and made the very unusual <laughs> sideways leap to setting up a renewable energy and uh, circular economy business. What it does is it uh, works with the UK's largest producers of waste coffee grounds, so a very niche uh, waste stream, but we actually produce in the UK alone about 500,000 tonnes of waste coffee grounds each year. Mm. And that's a negative effect of both uh, releasing CO2 when it degrades, but also methane when it degrades, which is obviously you know, about 27 times more potent than, than CO2. Mm. What we do is we work with very, very large producers of this waste stream, and then we collect it from all over the country we bring it to our manufacturing facility, which is up in Cambridgeshire. And there we turn it into a range of different products. Um, you know, we make it into biomass pellets, which can be used for renewable heat and power. We turn it into things called coffee logs. Uh, if, you, if you look up coffee logs, you'll find them for sale in your, your local supermarket or B&Q or on Amazon or whatever. And they're used as a sustainable alternative to coal or wood in your, in your log burning fire. Do they, do, they, do they have a smell to them? Do they? Have the nice smell of coffee, coffee cooking while you're doing They sadly don't, and that's because of the last product we make, which is actually we use some very, very, very clever scientists at Biobean who have come up with a way to actually extract that delicious coffee flavour, the smell that makes coffee smell and taste like coffee. They've managed to find a way to take that out of the coffee, waste coffee grounds themselves and reintroduce that as a food-grade kosher halal product back into the supply chain, working with amazing flavour houses and companies as well. So... Mm -hmm. What the, what the, I, I'm no longer involved in the day-to-day -day operation of that business, but what the, the team there are doing is some, some pretty extraordinary stuff. And the thing that gets me most excited about what, what's happening at Biobean is it's, and actually all of these projects is they're not happening at a niche scale. There are a lot of people, as I'm sure you, you're aware of, doing amazing things, but at a tiny scale. So, you know, it might be kilograms or a few tons a year. At Biobean, it's happening at the scale of tens of thousands of tons a year. And, you know, we've saved you know, hundreds of thousands of tons of CO2 emissions in the process. Great. And what are the kind of organisations, if, if, if someone listening to this likes the sound of that, is it, is it coffee shops and stuff that should get, get in contact with them? It's, it's not individuals trying to uh, give, give the... Uh, You're right. It's, just, it's not individuals who are doing it. We work with partners like Costa Coffee, Cafe Nero and build like that. But also, you know, if the chief executive of Nestle is listening, you know, Nescafe and Jacobs Dalagbert are the, you know, the biggest producers of waste coffee grounds globally through instant coffee. So, you know, yeah. if you had instant coffee this morning, it dissolves in our cup. And so we never yeah. see the fact that there's thousands, tens of thousands of tons of waste occurring up the supply chain in these enormous instant coffee factories. Oh, and so that's another partner of ours as well, is how we can, how we can recycle those waste streams. Great. Um, what have been the, the biggest barriers to success for you and how have you overcome them? 
So on the kind of three businesses I've set up, Fastwell 2030, Skyrim and Vibe, they've all been around. Uh, the, the idea itself is the relatively easy part. And I think, you know, you, you'll probably recognize this and a lot of the people who've set up projects can recognize that. The hard part is just the, um, when the idea meets reality and trying to kind of reconcile those two. So it's the grit to, to keep going and um, work incrementally through it, not to think that we're going, you know, I'm, I'm ever an optimist and always over ambitious in terms of what we can achieve when, but it's around trying to break down those plans into incremental steps and to work through that plan and recognize that uh, it's a, you know, decades long slog, not a, it's a marathon, not a sprint, basically. Great. So, so some really good advice there. So if you have, if you have something that looks like a great big hill ahead of you, break, break that down into slots and that makes it easier. Good advice. Um, you run a network of entrepreneurs called Fast Forward 2030. Can you tell me a bit about the purpose of that? Yeah, so uh, in 2015, uh, I was giving some lectures at University College London where I studied and uh, got talking to one of the professors there, someone called Professor Dame Henrietta Moore, who's founder and director of the Institute for Global Prosperity. And we were talking about how the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, which for those who aren't aware, there are 17 goals set about trying to, you know, by the United Nations and the signatories to it to try and tackle some of the world's biggest problems. And we noticed that from the outset, small businesses and entrepreneurs had been left out of the equation. There's a lot of talk of governments, there's a lot of talk of think tanks, there's a lot of talk of NGOs and big business, but small businesses, SMEs and entrepreneurs had all been ignored in that process. And so what we set about doing was co-founding this organization called Fast Forward 2030. You can check it out at fastforward2030.com and essentially trying to find what we, you know, very, very early stage entrepreneurs or people who are in that stage of wanting to set up a business but not sure how to take that next step and to really try and help them to set up their businesses and also to make sure that those businesses were businesses that had a social and environmental impact as well as the profit drivers. What we were finding was that out of the London-based entrepreneur network, so a lot of people with a fintech app or a crypto uh, solution or a kind of the next widget or app, but there weren't that many people trying to create environmental or social solutions. Or if they're trying to invent environmental social solutions, they were not doing it as companies or startups, they're doing it as uh, think tanks or books or papers so what we we're trying to do is trying to bridge that gap between people who had great ideas a lot of ambition and want to make a profit plus those people who wanted to make the world a better place and to show that you can actually use business as a force for good if you think about it in the right way so what we do at fastwood 2030 is we provide mentorship funding a support network a series of events which are currently online rather than in person obviously uh, we have two podcasts, one called uh, Impact Founders and one, one called Impact Hustlers and Impact Leaders, and then a network of um, early and mid-stage entrepreneurs called Impact Founders, uh, where people can compare notes and get advice and everything from how to offset your carbon footprint to who's the good accountancy firm to use for an R&D tax credit. So it's, it's, pretty, it's very practical on-the-ground advice for entrepreneurs trying to do that stuff. And last year, we expanded to... Lebanon and to Kenya. That's that's great. So, um, and actually, with our with the other hat that I, I wear as, as CEO of, of Higginson Strategy, um, we we work only with kind of purpose driven uh, businesses. 
that, that, that kind of have that mission and that heart. So, so I'm sure there's people that we've got there that would be very interested in that. What kind of changes have you noticed in business over the past uh, past past few years of, as you've been working with entrepreneurs and others? I think the key, I, I set up Biobean in 2013, 2014, uh, just after graduating university. So I guess I've been in this kind of space for seven or eight years. And I think the changes that I've seen primarily have been around it's become much less of a niche add-on. Like at the time, people were talking much more around CSR and things that would be uh, lip service or you know, greenwashing in terms of what these social environmental impacts might do. I think there's a lot more sincerity in terms of trying to be transparent in that and trying to actually make that impact and think about it much earlier in a company's development, which is really positive to hear. I think there's still a, a long way to go in terms of that. Um, obviously, things like the B Corp movement and the UN Sustainable Development Goals all help within it. Um, but I'm much more interested in how people can still work to align what they say publicly and what their ambitions are as a social environmental business to what actually translates on the ground. And I think until, I mean, I was listening on the radio this morning, there was talk about maybe Boris Johnson introducing the world's first government-sponsored carbon tax. I think there does need to be um, that alignment of economic drivers with some of these underpinning environmental and social issues for there to be the systemic change that a lot of people want. Mm. And looking to some of those businesses that, that are really leading, are there any mission-led businesses that you're particularly impressed with at the moment, or even individuals? Yeah, I think uh, there are some amazing individuals out there. I think uh, Paul Elkington, I think his work is, is uh, really inspiring and impressive. I think a lot of the work done by the B Corp movement itself, so not necessarily the individual businesses underneath it, but the, the institutional B Corp, I think, is, has been amazing in terms of trans, again, how, they can, how they've managed to connect the economic with the social and environmental. That, you know, there's a very strong marketing story as to why being a B Corp has got value to it, and other businesses are beginning to recognize that. So I think those are two that I'd, I'd draw out in particular in terms of it. Um, I think the challenge is around as you start getting bigger as a company, uh, they become different drivers and especially when there are kind of investors involved and other complex complexities around different stakeholders, making sure that those are fully aligned, I think, is, is the difficult part. But there are a lot of individuals doing really amazing things. And the thing with what we're trying to do with Fast Forward 2030 is they may not be big influential businesses now, but over the next decade between now and 2030, which is when the UN Sustainable Development Goals will be formally reviewed, how they, they I believe that they will become the most important and biggest businesses um, at that point in time. What has been your biggest failure? I think the biggest failure that I see is around how um, we haven't been able to do more in a shorter period of time. I think there's a, as I mentioned earlier, kind of over-optimism is, I think systemic amongst entrepreneurs, uh, but that can be very damaging in terms of, in short, what I call over-promising and under-delivering. And so that's not just important in terms of uh, trying to do things faster and better, but managing expectations of team members, of clients, of investors, of uh, you know, the public sector and being much more realistic in terms of that goal setting and those ambitions. And I think it's something that um, everyone does to an extent, 
but I think it's has been very, very damaging if we look back over the kind of 50 years of the environmental movement. I think that kind of uh, constant overpromising and delivering is is a reality, and I think I and my companies are definitely you know, guilty of that as well. Are there any are there any particular examples that you're willing or able to share of of, of uh, overpromising and delivering? Yeah, so I mean, you know, one specific one that comes to mind is, as let's say, at Biobean, our initial, uh, looking back at our initial business plan for that, um, we um, had proposed building an integrated biochemicals factory um, inside the M25. Um, in terms of, uh, we were very sincere in that ambition. It was going to produce a range of advanced biochemicals, an advanced liquid biofuel and a range of advanced solid biofuels, all derived from London's waste coffee grounds. Um, when we went out to tender to actually have that built, it came back with uh, not one, but two more zeros than we had budgeted for. And so, and so uh, that's a very, I mean, yeah, we were very early stage in, and I was still in my early twenties at that point in time, but that's a very tangible example of being so wildly optimistic to be to the point of uh you know being not even on this planet so getting a quote back of 120 odd million and having less than 10 million budgeted for the factory was uh was a, a cold cold heart in the mirror so you you would set yourself up for failure there unfortunately yeah. it sounds like a good lesson what have you been proudest of i don't think that I've been proud of sort of is the work at Fast Forward 2030. Specifically, it's quite difficult when you actually, as I'm sure you're finding with your podcast, when you host events or write books or do podcasts, it's quite difficult to see that immediate impact or to see the immediate um, results from it. But the thing that I think is keeping us going there and so excited there is around that you hear stories afterwards of two founders who met at your event who are now running a, a, a social enterprise or people who were about to close it down and then listened to the podcast and found an introduction or read a book and then that then translates them to be able to take their next step in action so it's seeing how those small seeds that you grow you sow early on can with time and with you know constantly showing up and doing the the work can actually make a big impact so i think you know the work you're doing and a lot of the people out there will often feel thankless you know you're you send a podcast out in the world or you host an event or you write a blog post or a paper and you think, you know, God, only 120 people have seen this or only three likes on Twitter, whatever the thing is, but how, if you keep at it and go keep going, that those small things can actually translate to um, tangible impact. And I'd say those stories of people who met through that network, people who have set up businesses because of it, people who were going to set up a music sharing app, but instead have set up a, a business, uh, you know, testing food expiry dates or whatever it is, that's the stuff that's really, really exciting. And, and, and that actually is the same with my teaching work. I teach at Imperial and UCL. And the other day, one of the students um, I taught two years ago was featured as one of the global changes in the this year's World Economic Forum at Davos. And seeing something which was, you know, literally an idea on paper, I was sitting with the student and she was sketching and coming up with these ideas for it and seeing that translate to a project which is now getting, you know, you know, headlines worldwide and doing some amazing things is, is really exciting. Well, that, well, that sets, sets me up very nicely to say that if you are listening to this podcast and you do get something out of this, please do like it and please do let us know. Um, 
But final question uh, to you, Arthur. Um, if you could give your younger self one piece of advice, what would it be? I think it's back to that point around how you how you are realistic in goal setting and how you can break down those goals into tangible smaller chunks. Uh, the mission, I've just finished a book, which I'd recommend again to your audience, uh, Mariana Mazzucato, Mission Economy. And in that, it took, that's much more targeted towards policymakers about how you can keep a grand goal, a grand mission, and then have sub goals and targets underneath that. And I think that's the piece which I definitely was over ambitious with and struggled with. So if I was going to be talking to myself at, you know, I'm 30 now, if I was going to talk to myself at 21, 22, I would say, keep those big, hairy, audacious goals out there, but try and be very specific and action oriented and how we can break that down into lots and lots and lots of small goals and then continuously go through achieving those small goals and building up rather than immediately trying to go for that big goal because if you go straight for the big one you will sadly fall on your face but being systematic in terms of breaking it down and thinking that through um, compounds a huge amounts over time and will you'll get there eventually. Arthur Kay, thank you very much indeed. It's been fascinating having you on this morning uh, with us at Nature 2030. Thanks for having me on, John. Great to chat.